0: I invite you to turn with me to two places in Scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. We're going to be looking at that whole chapter together. But also also turn to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And we're briefly going to be looking at the first three verses uh, at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. I heard of a lady once who would not allow her teenage children to read the Old Testament because of stories like what we're going to look at this morning. And I'm going to be honest with you, and I communicated this to all of our church family that is on the group text. I have a a way to communicate with everyone. And again, when you fill out that blue card, that loops you in. So fill that out so you can be involved. But I sent out kind of a disclaimer yesterday. just said, hey, listen, Genesis 38 is a very unique chapter. It's a dark chapter. It deals with some very mature subject matter. And, and, and just know there's some of this I can't dance around. we got to go right through it. Uh, but then there's other parts where I promise I will communicate with, some sensitive, uh, with sensitivity because there are young ears in the room. But just know this, the reason we... Walk through Scripture this way, and if you're with us for the first time this morning, I talked to somebody who was a guest, and I said, listen, just know that every Sunday we do not deal with Genesis 38, so come back. We're going to keep going, but this morning is unique. We have a commitment to the whole counsel of God's Word. It is all profitable. It is all valuable, is what that means. And, and young families, listen, this is important for you to listen to. We live in a culture that addresses these issues from a secular worldview. And so what I would rather have happen is I would rather speak from the authority of the Word of God to my children on how the Bible addresses these issues. Of course, we're going to look at some things that are difficult to walk through, but we're going to see a beautiful picture of God's grace in the middle of this as well. Two things I would share with you before we look at the passage. Know this, when we encounter things like this that are surprising and appalling, know this, the Bible was written in a time that dealt with the same sins that we deal with today. We look at the biblical culture and we think that we are far removed from that, and in many ways we are. We don't dress the same, we don't talk the same, we don't have the same culture or customs. But sin has always been sin, (laughs) Sin has always resulted in the same brokenness in our world. That being said, I want us to begin this morning at how the Lord wrote the end of the story. Don't just get wrapped up in the the difficult material of Genesis 38. We see God do something beautiful. You know, some good movies start by telling what happens at the end of the story. And I won't go through any examples, but think of your favorite movie. It might start with, hey, here's what happens after all of this has happened. And everything's said and done, this is the result. And then it flashes back, and it says, here's how we got there. You might have a movie coming to mind. Well, that's kind of the way I want you to think of this morning. In Matthew chapter 1, we see the Lord write, hundreds of years later, the end of this story. But to appreciate the end of that story, we've got to know what happens in Genesis 38. You see, in Matthew 1, we find the genealogy or the family tree of Jesus. And the chapter before us forms a critical link in the chain that leads to the Messiah. In Matthew 1 that I'm going to read in a moment, there are some names mentioned there that are going to come up for the first time here in Genesis 38. Names like Judah, Tamar... Perez, and Zerah, all characters introduced here in the Old Testament. There are some other names mentioned there as well. Along with Tamar, who is a Canaanite, we have Rahab, who is a Canaanite. Ruth, in the Old Testament, who was a Moabite. And Bathsheba, who was a Hittite. Know this about all of these women mentioned here. It's unique they're in the family tree nonetheless, But all four women had a highly irregular and potentially scandalous marital union that resulted in children. Even Mary. Think about Mary. Think about the miraculous and immaculate conception. Virgin Mary who risked being cut off from her fiancé Joseph and even her family because she was going to have the child Jesus. Church, God's methods are surprising God's grace is both amazing and surprising all at the same time if you're taking notes write this down God works in surprising ways to make grace available to generations of broken people you see the whole Bible is not a story of good guys and bad guys it's not cops and robbers It's a story of bad guys and gals who receive grace from an infinitely good God. With that in mind, I encourage you to stand with me, honor the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 1 is what I'm going to read to you. It's on the screen. Lots of names mentioned here. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. An account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are an eternally Good God. Thank you for amazing and surprising grace. And I pray this morning, Lord, that you would open your word to us. Let it be clear. Let it be convicting and encouraging all at the same time. And God, we trust you always, but especially today, to do a work that only you can do through your scripture. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So now let's go back to Genesis 38, and and we're going to walk through this picture of God's surprising grace. I want you to think of it this way. As we walk through these three truths of this passage, I want you to think of these as more like handles you can hold on to as you walk through this chapter. The main point, or the, I would say not just the main point, but the only point of Genesis 38 is what I just shared with you. In fact, if you don't get anything else at all, just hold on to that. But if you want to walk through this chapter with us, and you want to have this picture developed appropriately, then I want you to hold on to some handles along the way. It's a bumpy ride. <laughs> so hold on tight, okay? Here's the first one. It is surprising who God uses to make grace available. Surprising who God uses to make grace available. Now just like last week, and in many cases in stories in the Bible, the characters are introduced in the first verses. And once again, know this, there are no heroes in this story other than God. No one is put on a pedestal as this idealistic person who seems to have it all together. In fact, as you read the whole Bible, hold on to that truth. There are no heroes other than God. And that's abundantly clear in Genesis 38. Look with me at verses 1 through 4. I'm going to read this to you. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adulamite named Hira. I'm sorry, Leslie. These are big names. Do the best you can. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. You see, Judah is introduced in a most unfortunate way in Genesis 38. Here's what we learn about him if you're taking notes. Judah was a lustful opportunist. Judah was a lustful opportunist. You see, in verse 1, the context is said. It says, at that time. It seems out of place if you read the whole chapter. Why is this story kind of sandwiched at the beginning of the Joseph story? I mean, don't we want to get along with the Joseph story? It's a beautiful story. Why this picture of brokenness? Well, I believe there's a purpose for that. You see, at that time, when it says that, those three words, it places this in the context of everything that's happening in Joseph's life while he's in Egypt. You see, about 20 years pass in Genesis 38. So here's the way I want, the way I want you to think about this. All of those 20 years that are here in Genesis 38, Joseph's in Egypt. And the things that we see happen in Genesis 39 were probably happening at the same time that all of this was taking place. Notice in verse 2, it says this about Judah. It says he married a Canaanite woman. Why is that a big deal? Well, great Paul Paul Abraham and Paul Paul Isaac had strictly forbidden this practice. This was the big no no. Don't marry the Canaanites. Why? They are pagan. They do not follow or worship the same God that we worship. Notice also it says in verse 2, as we learn more unfortunate things about Judah. It says in verse 2 that he took a wife and slept with her. These are words of force, callousness, and lust. These are not words that communicate any amount of tenderness. You can think of it this way. Judah goes into Canaan looking for the most beautiful bride he can find. He doesn't judge her based on character alone. No, he judges her based on appearance. Through his lustful actions, he then has three children. Notice also, this is unique. Judah's wife is not named. She's not mentioned by name. That's significant because she was nameless to Judah as well. He was lustful. But also, it wasn't limited to Judah. This was generational sin. We've seen this happen throughout the Old Testament. Judah's sons, if you're taking notes, were woefully wicked. Their wickedness, I'm not going to go into great detail about because these are the darkest verses of this chapter. Look at verses 6 and 7, though. It says that Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight, and the Lord put him to death. Now, you might be surprised to know that after the events of Sodom and Gomorrah and the great flood, this is the first time that the Lord put someone to death for their wickedness in the Old Testament. Not even Cain and Abel had that happen, Remember? And so this is a big deal. We don't know what he did, but it was certainly wicked enough to the point and God was so disgusted by his wickedness that he put him to death. Listen, don't miss this truth in Scripture. Yes, God is loving and gracious, but he is also a God of great justice. And we see that clearly in Judah's oldest son. Now, verses 8 through 10, again, are the sinfully graphic verses of this chapter. Not going to go into the specific sin, but just know this. After Ur was put to death by God, then someone had to take up the mantle of fathering children through Tamar. You say, well, this is really dark. The Bible is really disgusting. Well, here, you've got to understand, the Bible is written in a context of ancient Palestine. It's far removed from who we are, and I'm going to be more of a teacher than a preacher right here, so just hold on, okay? You've got to understand, this was a patriarchal society. The value of women then was wrapped up in their marriages and in their children. If a woman did not have a child, it was more than just something that was uncomfortable. No, it was culturally and socially taboo. It was in many ways a death sentence for her in that culture. We, of course, look at that as woefully wicked and wrong. But understand, that's the culture that the Bible grew up in. And so when we find Tamar here, whose first husband has died, and she has no children, she's in a difficult predicament. And it was up to the second oldest son, Onan, to have children with her. This was his obligation, his cultural and social obligation. And through a sequence of events in verses 8 through 10, he chooses not to have children with her, And the nature of his sin, we need to take note of. It was selfish. It was disrespectful. And more than that, it was a carnal disregard for the significance and welfare of another human being. And that sin is not just limited to Onan. That sin is true if we're not careful of everyone. So you see the nature of sin. And Onan Onan was put to death as well. God deemed his actions, he judged his actions, and he put him to death immediately. Well, Judah had one other son, but Judah withheld Tamar from him. Therefore, we find this. Tamar was a hopeless widow. So Judah was lustful, opportunistic. His sons were woefully wicked And poor Tamar was caught in between as the hopeless widow. Look with me at verse 11 at what happens. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he might die too like his brothers. You can't blame the guy at this point, right? (laughs) Both of his oldest sons have been put to death by God and they were both associated with Tamar. And so he says, hey, I'm not going to let you marry my other son. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. She was cast to the side. She was hopeless. She was not just separated from her family, but also you could say that she was put to death culturally. It's surprising who God uses to make grace available. Let me remind you, hold on tight. Matthew chapter 1. Who's mentioned in that genealogy, that family tree? Judah (laughs) and Tamar. You know, you and I are not much different from these characters whose wickedness and brokenness seems isolated to the ancient text of Scripture. We all have, I like to say it this way, we all have our own brand of brokenness. Something comes to your mind. It doesn't have to be some sort of addiction. It doesn't have to be a temper. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. All of these things are evidence of our brokenness. All of these things remind us that we are inadequate and in need of a good God. And yet, God chooses to work through people, people like you and I, to share his grace with a hopeless and dying world. Isaiah would say it this way, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. But it's not just the who that is surprising in God's plans. Notice this also. It is surprising how God makes grace available. So it's surprising who he uses, and it's surprising how he does it. Are you still holding on? God works in surprising ways to make grace available to generations of broken people. Holding on to that main idea, notice this. Tamar, beginning in verse 12, enacts a risky and immoral scheme. She takes matters into her own hands, if you will. We talked about how she was alienated from those around her, alienated from her family. She was cast aside culturally. And she says, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to jump right to the application here. Who else in this room is just like that? Will you be with me for a minute? You know what I'm talking about. Before we turn to God, our first resort is to turn inwardly to ourselves. If you're like me, you like to be a problem solver. You like to not just fix yourself. You like to fix others. And that's who Tamar is. She's not much different than us. She doesn't turn to God. She turns to her own schemes. Notice what she does, beginning in verse 12. I'm going to read to verse 15. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, had died. When Judah had finished mourning, he and his friend Hira went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers. So here's what's happened. Let me set the stage for you. Again, bridging the gap to culture. Judah was mourning, not just the death of his wife, but also the fact that he had no way of having more children in his family line. He was in a very tight spot. And so he goes to grieve. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Sheila had grown up, she had not been given him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Again, this is a sinful plan. <laughs> Make no mistake, God does not bless these sinful activities. Yes, we see the end of the story in Matthew chapter 1, but understand, his methods are surprising. The how is surprising. Notice as we continue reading. In verse 16, Tamar, I'm sorry, Judah takes action. He went over to her, that is Tamar, and said, Come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know... That she was his daughter in law. So, if you're taking notes, not only was Tamar enacting a risky and immoral scheme, but the second part of this involves Judah. Judah entangles himself further in sin's consequences. And so, this becomes a really ugly picture very quickly. I could spare you from what happened in verses 8, 9, and 10, but we've got to walk through verses 16 through 19. Watch what happens. She said, What will you give me for sleeping with me? I will send you a young goat from my flock, he replied. But she said, Only if you leave something with me until you send it. Well, what should I give you? he asked. And she answered, Your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. So he gave them to her, and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. She got up and left. And then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When she says, I want you to give me your signet ring, (laughs) your cord, and your staff, that is the modern day equivalent of her saying, I want you to give me your driver's license, (laughs) your credit card, and, and oh, by the way, go ahead and give me the wedding ring too. And so she says, if you're going to, this is going to happen, if this exchange is going to happen, you're going to leave these things with me. So understand the risky behavior that's happening here, not just from Tamar, but also from Judah. Understand, Tamar was hopeless in this situation. She was cast to the side. In many ways, she was victimized by those around her. And so she takes matters into her own hands and she says, I have to have children. And this is the only way I see that I can have children and therefore I can have Safety, because again, in that culture, having children meant security. This was risky behavior, it was sinful behavior. Let me tell you this sin is a trap, brothers and sisters. It's a trap. Think about a net when it's cast into the ocean. The net entangles whatever creature it lands on. And how does that happen? Well, the more the creature moves and struggles, the more entangled they become. Notice how Judah becomes more entangled in verses 20 through 23. He tries to fix it. Look at what he does. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend in order to get back the items he had left with the woman, his friend could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. (laughs) So the friend returned to Judah saying, I couldn't find her. And besides, the men of the place said, there has been no prostitute here. So Judah said, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send this young goat, but you couldn't find her. Uh Uh-oh. So imagine this is the scenario for Judah. All of these things wrapped up with his identity have been left behind in the brothel, so to speak. He's in real trouble. This is not a good situation for him. And he's still struggling, again, in that net of sin, ensnared with sin. The more he struggles, the worse it seems to get. Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 6 speaks to this issue evildoers are snared by their own sin, but the righteous shout for joy and are glad. That's the way sin works, friends. The more we struggle and fight in our flesh against it, the worse it gets. Notice verses 24 through 26. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said. You can imagine the judgment in his voice. And let her be burned to death, he proclaims. Now understand that the penalty of death in the Old Testament culture, you can look into Leviticus to find this to be true. If you were pregnant out of wedlock, you were supposed to be stoned to death. Still put to death, but in a very severe manner of death, but being burned to death was far worse. Why did Judah take it to this degree? Well, he wanted judgment to be most severe. Understand, his two oldest sons were dead because of their association with Tamar. And he said, I'm going to show her. But let's keep reading. Y'all know how this goes. Verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? And the suspenseful, suspenseful music plays at this point. Dun, 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 right? That's what happens. Look at verse 26, what takes place though. Judah's response is surprising. He struggled against sin this whole time. He's been fighting against this situation the whole time. He's been trying to cover up his sin the whole time. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and he said, she is more in the right than I. Literally it reads, she is more righteous than than I am. Since I did not give her to my son, and he did not know her intimately again. He turned from his sin. He confessed what had happened. Here's what's critical in this. It's surprising who God uses. It's surprising how God makes a way for grace, but finally, it is surprising why God makes grace available. It's surprising why he does all of this we see a transformation happen in Judah. Notice this in verse 26. God opens our eyes to our sin. He reveals to us our sinful activity and our wickedness. And this is repentance, brothers and sisters. Repentance for Judah began with an aha moment. And it begins the same for us. It begins with that moment when the light bulb seems to go off and we recognize who we are in our brokenness. Sin finds us out, so to speak. But it culminates in our turning away from sin. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 47, there's a beautiful New Testament picture of what happens. Jesus is hanging on the cross, suffering to his final breath. And there's a centurion, it says, at the base of that cross. And he sees all the events take place. He actually participates in all of the events that day at the cross. And at the end of all of it, he says, surely this was a righteous man. He had an aha moment, you see. He had a moment where he saw himself for who he actually was and God for who he is. Isn't that what we sing about in our songs? He's good to us. He's our father. He's good to us when we don't deserve his goodness. Church, that's a rich, rich, liberating theology. But it's not just about Judah. It's not just about Tamar. And it's not just about Judah's sons. No. God finally offers hope to generations of broken people. It's not just about us, even. It's about those who are seemingly outside of the promise of God. Verses 27 through 30 graphically portray the birth of Tamar's two sons, Perez and Zerah. Again, in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, not just one of these characters show up, but all of them show up. We saw that. Why this beautiful picture of God's grace on display? Why this, this picture in Genesis 38 of darkness and brokenness and sin? Here's the reason, brothers and sisters. It's for generations of broken people in need of God's grace. Yes, it was a sinful means that got there. Yes, it was woefully wicked people that God used to get there. But all of it culminates in making grace available for you and for me and for generations of people in need of grace. You see, that link in the chain to Jesus is very important because it's only through Jesus that that grace is made available. It's only through Jesus that we have the opportunity to be forgiven of our sins and to be in right relationship with God. So in a sense... It is about you if you're sitting here today and you are apart from God. Listen carefully. All of this brokenness, all of this deceit, all of this darkness, it ultimately paves the way to our Savior and your Savior. If only you would believe and trust in Him and the love that He has for you. I want to close with a few things. You know, Christianity is the only religion that has any concept of grace people might say, well, all religions are the same, right? It's just different paths up the same mountain, so to speak. And unfortunately, if you did a survey of many people in our churches, it would be surprising and troubling how many people in our churches believe that. But let me set the record straight just at least here at First Baptist Cape Spring. You ready? Christianity is the only religion that has any concept of Grace that separates Christianity from every other world religion. Islam, who people liken closest to Christianity, Allah's followers live in fearful submission to Him, trying to earn His love and favor. Listen, that is not the message of Christianity. No, the message of Christianity is there's nothing we can do to earn His love and favor. No, it is only by grace, the scriptures say, that we are saved. Hinduism, those who follow into that religion, they follow a seemingly infinite number of gods and goddesses trying to appease whichever god seems to have the most influence in their lives. If you walk into any village in Nepal, you're going to find them worshipping a different god or goddess. Why is that? Well, that god or goddess for generations of people has been showing favor or displeasure to those people. And so everything they do in worship is meant to appease that God and that God alone. Again, working, working to earn favor. And then Buddhism. Karma rules the day in Buddhism, right? Your good actions and your bad actions are on a scale, and you just hope at the end of your life here on this earth that your good actions outweigh your bad ones. Don't you see the hopelessness in all of that? I can tell you what you don't see. You don't see grace. Two challenges for you as you have an opportunity to respond this morning. Question one, is God working in you in a surprising way today? Perhaps you've been confronted with this truth for the very first time. And you seem to have no other choice but to respond to it. I can promise you this walking away from it is responding to it. God has offered you grace, He has offered you a means of forgiveness of your sins, He has offered you a way to have a relationship with Him. Don't walk away from it. Secondly, is God working through you in a surprising way today? How's God using you, brother or sister? What's he doing through you? What's he doing through you to bring others who don't know God into relationship with God? I'm going to tell you what blesses my heart. It blesses my heart when I see people who have been attending this church for a short while. And I meet them this morning and they've brought somebody with them today. They've seen somebody and they said, listen, I want you to go to church with me. When's the last time you did that? When, 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 you, when you look at your own life, who do you know who doesn't know Christ? What lost person do you know? How is God working through you in a surprising way? I'm going to invite you to respond to that this morning, and we're going to do